In today's episode, we're talking about turning fans into customers and turning customers into fans. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. Quick plug before we get to our guest introduction today. If you're focused on guest experience or employee experience, definitely go check out our email newsletter. As we work with pro teams and college athletic departments around the country, we're taking the lessons that we learn from our experiments and our projects, and we're putting those insights into the newsletter. A couple of times per week, you'll get everything from the articles and content that are inspiring us to innovate, as well as new tools that we're using and loving. If you get value from this show, you're going to love the newsletter. To sign up, head to engagementpartners.com backslash newsletter. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer experience, employee experience, and we try to tease out what are the experiments that they're running? What are the trends that they're paying attention to? What are the insights from their career that have brought them success? Then we take all of those things and we apply them to the world of sports and entertainment. Now, in today's episode, we have David Meerman Scott, who is an internationally known author, advisor, educator, and speaker. His latest book, Fanocracy, turning fans into customers and customers into fans is particularly interesting for us, obviously, on the show where we talk all about customer experience, building emotional connections with your fans and your customers. Uh, So David's insights are right up our alley. He really focuses his whole career on sales and service. And he's got a number of other great books like The New Rules of Marketing and PR, The New Rules of Sales and Service, Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, and tons more. This is a really unique episode for us because we're going to get into some of the neuroscience behind fandom and how to turn customers into fans. Uh, We cover lessons from outside of the sports industry. Like I mentioned, Grateful Dead already. We're going to talk a lot about that in the episode today. And overall, David takes a very similar approach to what we do on this podcast, where we're constantly looking at outside industries, trying to pull insights from those outside industries and apply them to the world of sports entertainment. David does some of those similar things of studying deep, deep, deep expertise, uh, companies that have deep expertise to really be able to distill those insights and put them into different frameworks that he bases his speaks or his speeches around and his books around. Uh, David really does a great job of that on this episode today. Um, so without further ado, let's turn it over to David Meerman Scott. David, welcome to the show. David, it's great to be here. Two Davids. <laughs> two, two Davids rocking out talking about fandom. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's jump in right off the bat. Uh, talk to us about how you got into fandom and why that has become such a passion for you uh, as how you help, and how you help other businesses with that fandom. Let's start sure. with that definition setting. Yeah, so I've, um, I've written 12 books, and um, the book that I wrote most recently is called Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans. It's right here. And what's um, interesting about my journey to write this book is that I'm best known, well, maybe not so much anymore because Fanocracy is doing great, hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. But prior to that, I was best known for a book called The New Rules of Marketing and PR. And that book's out in... Um, uh, 29 other languages. It's done really well. It's in the seventh edition right now. And that was the first book to really describe how to use social media and content to, to do marketing. It originally came out back in 2007. And so I, you know, as cheerleader about Facebook and all these sorts of, of ways to reach people. But in the last couple of years, I've become really concerned about the algorithms deployed by the social networks, especially Facebook. I believe the Facebook algorithm is the most destructive thing ever invented by humans. You can think about other destructive things invented by humans. I think Facebook is the worst because it's polarizing. It's pushing people into um, categories. It's it's um, it's surfacing conspiracy theories and polarization. So I I was really concerned. I'm the dude who wrote the book about how to use this stuff, and I'm really concerned about it. So 
I was talking to my daughter, Reiko, um, about five years ago. We were driving in the car. At the time, she was um, uh, 20, I think, 22 or 23. And I said, my gosh, you know, all this stuff going on with social networks. But here I am, a massive fan of the things that I love. You know, I love live music. I've been to 804 live concerts in my life, 75 Grateful Dead concerts. And then Reiko Reiko pipes in and says, oh, you know, I'm as you know, Daddy, I am such a Harry Potter fan. And she's a K-pop fan and she's a Boston Bruins fan. So we started to geek out about these things that we're fans of. And um, I kept asking her questions, you know, what does this mean for your generation? She's a, she's a millennial and I'm obviously not. <laughs> she's mixed race. I'm obviously not. Um, you know, what does this mean for, for you and your generation? And we decided in the end to write this book together because we're so different, yet our thoughts and ideas around fandom are so much the same. I, I have a lot of directions I can go with that. Um, but I, I want to start with the fact that you worked with your daughter on this. It, yeah. we'll take, let's take a little tangent on this. Uh, I actually, in our company engagement, uh, my dad is a partner. And so mm. oh, wow. getting, so, you, so you know what it's like, but from the opposite perspective. Exactly, exactly. So I'm, I am curious just two seconds out of personal selfishness, right? I mean, <laughs> what, have, what have been some of the ups and downs in, in writing this book with your daughter? Um, it, the ups have been way, way, way better than the several downs. So, so we actually became super close. Um, we'd always been really close. I only have one child. Uh, and my wife and um, Reiko's mother and I are, are quite close. And we have a nice tight, we have had a nice tight threesome of people. But what was interesting about this project was that it brought the two of us together with my wife, Reiko's mother, as a, you know, a bystander. So it was something that we could do together, just the two of us. Uh, and my, my wife and my daughter have things that they can do together as well. Um, and, and, and the thing that really made that special was we had to come at this project as equals. Um, and maybe you're thinking the same thing of working with your dad, but you know, I couldn't be the father to say, oh, you know, you got to do it this way because I'm the boss. Her ideas were as good, if not better than mine. She's a better writer than I am. <laughs> so um, so having her as an absolute 100% equal partner made total sense and it made the project great. Um, one of the downs was that we really struggled in the beginning as we were writing and we didn't know why. Why isn't this book working? And we have some great ideas. We've done some great interviews. We interviewed hundreds of people about what they're a fan of. And I mean, it's all over the map what people are a fan of. You know, they're a fan of Peloton. They're a fan of, um, of the New York Yankees. They're a, a fan of surfing. Um, so it's, it's sports they play. It's sports they love to watch. Um, it's music. It's books. It's bird watching. It's camping. It's fly fishing. I mean, it's everything. But then we also spoke with hundreds of organizations of all kinds that have developed fans. So that was really interesting. So we knew we had these great ideas, but why isn't it coming down um, on paper? And we figured it out about a, a year into the project is we were trying to write as one voice. Mm. So, um, you know, we we took her ideas and my ideas and put it, mashed it together to create the initial draft of a book and it didn't work. So we ended up actually completely rewriting and she wrote roughly half the chapters and I wrote the other half, but we actually say who wrote it, you know, chapter one by David, chapter two by Rico. And it worked great because um, her voice shines through her stories shine through. She talks about the things that she's a fan of. She's now an emergency um, department doctor at Boston Medical Center. So at the time we were writing, she was in medical school. So she writes about medical school and I write about the stuff I love to do. So that made it way better. So that that initial down where we were like, why isn't this working? I mean, what's going on here turned into another set of highs when we realized that we had to write it in that way. It It's so interesting because I think particularly trying to write a book about fandom from a combined point of view, it just, I mean, it, 
looking at it from from where we are now, it just obviously it wouldn't work because fandom is so individual right. and so unique to that person. So how could you mash it up into one point of view? It, it, it would seem really difficult, but that's what's so great about fandom. It's so individual. It's so individual. But, you know, I was, we came at it as authors and I'd written a couple of other books where I had co-authors um, and and those always worked and we couldn't figure out why. So we should have spoken to you before we started to write because we would have saved a year of time. But um, I, I, don't, I don't know that I would have given uh, any better advice then either. It's, it's more the hindsight thing. Right. Um, but it ended, it ended up being terrific just simply because. You know, she's a completely different generation. She loves way different things than I do. She's a woman. You know, there's so many different elements that uh, and she's a scientist, doctor. She did a neuroscience background. And one of the things we really dug into that was fascinating to me was the neuroscience behind fandom. And, um, you know, we dug into this and we interviewed. Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about that. Go go deeper. we, we interviewed neuroscientists. Reiko did an undergraduate degree in neuroscience, but we interviewed some, some really well-known neuroscientists. And, um, and it turns out that our brains as humans are hardwired to want to be part of a tribe of like-minded people. It, it's, it's in our DNA. It's in our brains. It's, it goes back tens of thousands of years because it was a survival technique. You know, I mean, think think back tens of thousands of years and and proto humans were roaming the savanna or roaming the plains of North America or uh, 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 or the desert somewhere. And if you were alone, you were vulnerable. If you were with your tribe of a dozen or 20 or 30 or 40 people, you were safe. And that same thing is true today. It's it's hardwired in our brains. So what that means is that is that when we're with fellow fans, like if I'm at a Grateful Dead concert, I've been to 75 of them, I can be I can turn to anybody who's next to me and I can say, "Hey, what's, you know, what do you think they're going to open with tonight?" You know, this kind of thing. And and I never met that person before, but we're part of the same tribe. We we speak the same language. We're part of the same community. Um, same things true of people who um, who love the same sports team or who play the same sport. You know, you're if I'm I love to surf, and if I'm surfing and I'm in the water, you know, I don't have to have ever met the person who's next to me. I've got something I can instantly talk about. The opposite is true as well. If you're in a crowded elevator, you don't know those people, you feel, you feel vulnerable. You're not part of the same tribe. So this idea is super powerful when it comes to fandom, because if you understand that, um, you can sort of think about ways to grow that fandom, to sort of tap into the neuroscience aspect of, of how you can create a tribe. And there's tons of elements to it, but but that that becomes super, super important is to make people feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. So a couple a couple things. I mean, I think there's the aspect of growing your tribe that I want to get into, uh, knowing what you know about fandoms. There's also the aspect of going back to the original conversation around Facebook. Maybe maybe we start here and then we'll go into growing fandoms sure. a little bit. Um, I think going back to your your initial conversation about Facebook and how polarizing it's taken us, right? I, I, I do believe that in when it comes to organizations trying to create fandoms, uh, you cannot create a product for the masses anymore because Facebook and the different social medias have created such polarization, obviously politically here, mm-hmm. but in so many other aspects we're as human beings, we only have so much time to spend. We're going to spend it in areas that we're really, really, really hyper passionate about. Right. And, and so I'm curious as to your take as to how organizations can go about creating, turning customers into fans when you really have to be pretty specialized. You can't go out and try to attract the masses. Um, yeah. So it is an interesting question. And I think that there are some benefits to social media and social media should certainly be a, 
a part of, a, of an overall strategy for growing fans. So I'm not so anti-social media as to say that you should cancel your accounts as, a, as, a, as an individual and that as um, somebody who wants to build fans that you should never use social media. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But there are many, many, many other ways to, to grow fans that are, that are super interesting. And, you know, one of the things that started us down this journey of researching fandom was this idea of what else is there besides social networks? Because that's, that was kind of the starting point. And one of the things that we learned that was really interesting, again, it comes from neuroscience, is the importance of, the, of being in person together with those like-minded people that we talked about a little bit earlier. Now, we're, I, I recognize as we're making um, this um, session that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Hopefully, we're going to emerge soon. Um, I get my second shot this week. That's pretty exciting to me. Um, so, um, so I think I think we will emerge. And I actually just started purchasing tickets again for shows um, um, that are you know into later into 2021 into 2022, which is pretty exciting because I haven't bought a ticket to a show in a year. But um, so I recognize we're in a pandemic. But one neuroscience scientist, his name is Edward T. Hall, identified the incredible importance of physical proximity to growing fans. And so um, he identified that further than 12 feet away from, from you is considered public space. And public space further than 12 feet away, our brains do not track people who are in public space. We know they're there, but we don't track them um, you know, so if you're in the stands and you're watching people in a sports field, you know, they're there, of course, but you're not, um, it's not, it doesn't become an emotional connection where it becomes super emotional is when you start to be within 12 feet and from 12 feet to four feet is called social space. And inside of four feet is called personal space. So this, the closer you get to somebody, the more powerful the shared emotions. The closer you get to someone, the more powerful the shared emotions. So what does that mean? It means as you're trying to build fans, now again, talking about once we emerge from the pandemic, but as you're trying to build fans, um, your challenge is how can you actually bring fans close to other fans? And then naturally, if they're in a sporting event, they are, there's fans that are right next to them. And then also, how can you maybe bring them close to um, the players or the musicians or the actors or whatever um, kind of event you're putting on, that becomes a little bit more of a challenge. Um, but those things are super important because, again, the closer you get to someone, the more powerful the shared emotions. And when you actually have an opportunity to maybe take a selfie with a famous um, star, a sports star, or uh, or go to an event where they, they speak and you can have a chance to go into the rope line or whatever it is, these things become really, really powerful for, for fans um, to have the opportunity to be able to participate in. Um, yet uh, many of the, I'm, I'm a music fan, maybe the artists that I um, love try to avoid contact right, with right. the unwashed public, right? They, they purposely... Um, try to do the exact opposite of, um, of, of having that kind of interaction. I'm reminded of um, a festival I went to a couple of years ago, Outside Lands in San Francisco, and uh, an artist, St. Vincent, um, actually walked down the stage, down the steps, and then into the front rows of the audience. Um, and it was a festival, so everyone was standing, so not really rows, but into that into into us and I happened to be right there and I, she was so close you know I just touch her shoulder and and what was interesting to me was how powerful that moment was for everybody who was close to her it actually ended up being um, a top 10 standout moment of the entire four-day festival it was covered in Rolling Stone magazine and all kinds of other places because of that proximity but here's something that's super interesting is that there's another form of neuroscience called mirror neurons, which are the part of our brains that fire when we see somebody doing something as if we're doing it ourselves. 
And the idea of mirror neurons is super interesting because um, it actually shows that when you do what we're doing right now, and I know some people are, are only listening, but we're actually doing this on video. And if you crop a video as if you're four feet away, people's brains actually process that as if you're right in the same room through mirror neurons. I want to actually demonstrate this using something else. Um, when you see somebody doing something, your brain fires as if you're doing it yourself. I'm holding a lemon and a slice of lemon right now. So even if you're just listening to this, um, follow along here. I have a lemon in one hand, a slice of lemon in the other. If I take a bite of the lemon, it's super powerful. And it, wow, it makes my eyes close and water a little bit. My mouth is puckering up. My, my, um, my, my, I can feel that lemon on my tongue and on my lips. And David, you feeling the lemon? I'm feeling it. I'm you feeling feel it. Lemon, yeah. And you know what? Even if you're only listening to me talk about a lemon, you're feeling it. But especially if you're able to see that. Now, what's interesting here is this explains why we feel we know movie stars or sports stars, because we feel as though they're talking to us if they look directly into the camera. Um, and so what this means, especially during the pandemic, but as we emerge as well, the use of video looking directly at the camera in a natural way, having um, virtual meet and greets, these kinds of things um, builds fans in the same way that you feel as though you personally know a movie star. And again, not very many um, teams or artists, um, rock bands use this technique, but they really should. It's so interesting. I think it's for me where my brain is going with this is even on this is a this is a recent example, even on stadium design. Mm. So we just got back last week from uh, we're helping an MLS team, a new major league soccer team, open their new venue. Oh, cool! And one of the things that we did, so one of the things that we did last week was we kind of created this amazing race event. So instead of just doing like a regular training for all the staff or doing a stadium tour, they would go around and we broke them up into teams, and they had to complete missions throughout different points of the venues. And, and one of the area in the venue that they had to go to was kind of this field le level club. Mm -hmm. And in the field level club, what they designed was that the players will walk out of the locker room and through that feet, through that club, through the oh, middle of the club cool. and out into the pitch. And so that's exactly what I was thinking of when you said, Hey, you got to be closer than kind of, if you're, if you're within four feet now, that's personal space yep. and the connection is stronger that's all these high, the highest paying people in the building are going to be within that personal space. Yeah. And, and creating and, that emotional connection. And per personal space, four feet is pretty close. That's cocktail party distance. That's like if you're at a, uh, you know, at a table over dinner. Um, but even within 12 feet is powerful. And I, I've never heard of what you just described before, but it seems like a perfect way to implement this idea. And, um, uh, you know, there's clearly they have to navigate the venue and go through the club and then get back down to the field and whatnot. So it takes a little bit of logistics. But um, what a great way to do exactly what we just talked about. And um, it doesn't need to be that kind of convoluted. And, you know, do the players have to have it in their contracts? I mean, all these sorts of things that that would go through the minds of the different people involved in making it happen, but gosh, darn it, that builds fans. So do it. Right. <laughs> you know? the, mo the money will come when we can create that. Yeah, brand. I mean, if you're, if you're a team owner, just do it. If you're one of the athletes, just do it, you know, make it a part of, of, of what it, what your, you know, business is because the more fans you have as an athlete, the more fans you have as a team, the more fans you have as a league, um, the more powerful um, that fandom becomes and um, and more successful ultimately that the endeavor becomes. Well, let, maybe we'll use this as a transition to go into how organizations can grow their fans. But I, I you mentioned music a number of times here. Yeah. And you mentioned one in particular that we've never dove into on this podcast, but I think you definitely can dive into it here. And that is K-pop. And yeah. how K-pop has really been able to create rabid, rabid fans. Rabid. Not, not just in Korea, but everywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, so 
talk to us a little bit about what you've learned from studying K-pop and how organizations can adapt some of those insights to turn their customers into fans. Yeah, K- K-pop is a super interesting um, beast. I'll call it a beast. Um, and, and maybe uh, maybe before, before you jump super in, for people that don't know what K-pop yeah, it's, is. Yeah, uh, it? it stands for Korean pop. So Korean pop is, it's basically boy bands and girl bands. Typically they start when they're really young, 16 or 17, um, they take these cute boys and cute girls uh, who can s- sort of sing and sort of dance and and train them. They literally go through several years of training in these essentially boot camps to become um, uh, K-pop stars. And then they're typically in groups, you know, four, five, six, seven people in a group. Blackpink is one of the more famous ones, and there's but there's many of them. And then there's a whole television industrial complex around K-pop in Korea, but it's become really popular outside of Korea. My daughter's a massive fan of K-pop. Um, and uh, I've been learning from her. I can't say I'm a fan, but I'm, I, can ima- I can appreciate what they do. So each of the bands has um, their own unique style, their own unique way of dressing and of dancing. And, um, and, and people then are attracted to and become fans of the different groups and then become attracted to and fans of the different um, individuals within the group. And then um, and then they become fans and are engaged with the drama of what goes on in each of their groups and with each of the individuals in their groups in a really, really strong way. And um, the power of K-pop is is quite unbelievable. And my favorite example of that, as you may remember, I believe it was in October of last year uh, of 2020. When um, Donald Trump um, organized a rally in, um, I believe it was in Oklahoma, and he said, free tickets, come to the rally. And all of a sudden, they were incredibly surprised that a million people had signed up for free tickets. Um, And they actually then built another venue next to the arena that they had booked um, for you know, tens of thousands of people to have an outdoor rally. So Trump was going to fly in, speak to the outdoor rally for five or 10 or 15 minutes, and then go into the indoor rally and do his thing. Well, it turns out that over a million K-pop fans requested tickets to basically punk Trump into into thinking that he was going to have all these people. And then he he and the campaign kept talking about how big this is going to be. It's going to be massive. It's going to be enormous. And then the true fans of Donald Trump didn't come out because they were scared of how big it was going to become. And then in a, I think it was like a 20,000 capacity arena, there were only 6,000 people. And it was yep. the biggest story of the week that um, K-pop has, had punked Donald Trump. I mean, that is a remarkable story to me. And, and showed, we're, 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 friend, we're friends with some of the we're friends with some of the meeting organ or the event organizers of that. Right. And the venue, the guys that run the venue. And so I remember leading up to it, they were freaking out. Like, yeah. how are we going to be able to we're, do this? How, how can we possibly control a million people? <laughs> uh, well, it turns out there were there were six thousand who really wanted to come. And and, you know, nine hundred and ninety, however many thousand who were punked. So I think I think you know, that sort of shows that if if that group of K-pop fans go in a particular direction, it can become quite powerful. They are now very strongly behind the Stop Asian Hate movement here in the U.S. And um, having my, my wife's Japanese, um, our daughter is half Japanese. So, um, you know, we, we understand that Stop Asian Hate movement. Um, campaign and the K-pop artists are now very strongly behind that. Um, And it's very, 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 very powerful when you can put a group of fans in a direction like that. And I believe that the same thing is true of any fandom, you know, whether it's the fandom of a team or the fandom of a band or the fandom of um, of, of of a television show or whatever it might be. When you when you think about K-pop and how they're able to create such rabid followings, again, getting a million people to sign up for that 
the free tickets to the Trump rally. What are some of the key takeaways that an organization might learn uh, and be able to adapt and apply to their own business from from K-pop specifically? One of the biggest things is they make people feel like insiders. And, uh, you know, as a fan, I tend to be fans of those organizations, companies, um, artists, authors who do make people feel like they're a bit of an insider. Um, Yet that's pretty rare because most organizations set up a massive barrier between um, between the athlete or artist and the fan. And, you know, that you kind of never cross those things. Uh, when you make people feel like an insider by, by, by giving them, and, and this isn't about selling them a VIP pass. That's not what I'm talking about, but something that's completely and totally free that allows them to become um, closer to that artist. Uh, you know, um, I, I, I know one of my daughter's favorite K-pop um, artists uh, have um, uh, inside looks at dance practice. So it's not just the choreographed um, final product in the YouTube video for the latest song that is released. It's them screwing up in practice. Um, and, and people love it because they're seeing the practice and then they're starting to learn what the, the song is and what the dance steps are. And then they release the final version which is very different than what most artists do, which is they release the final version. You never know what went into making that. Um, so there's lots of things we can learn. Um, I think also um, I'm going to segue from K-pop to the Grateful Dead. So we'll go, we'll go back 40 years. Um, um, but they're the, they're the originals at, at creating fandom, right? Well, Especially in the I, I think the Grateful Dead created a social network before Mark Zuckerberg was even born. And I'm a part of that. You know, I was a teenager and my the neighbors around me, um, there was a guy who lived on that side of the street who was like four or five years older than me. And he cranked Grateful Dead from his bedroom window. And I'm like, I really like that. What is that? That's Grateful Dead. What album is that? Oh, it's not an album. That's a tape of one of their concerts. And it turns out that the Grateful Dead and uh, Grateful Dead was one was the, the first band or first significant band to allow fans to record their concerts. So you could bring um, professional level recording gear into the venue. And that meant um, reel to reel or cassette tape recorders. And then later on digital audio, audio taped um, machines into the venue with um, microphone stand. Literally, literally, you could bring microphone stands into the venue. Um, they had the, the band got um, so into this that they I mean, not only they allow it, they encouraged it and they gave you um, uh, a power power strips that you could plug into. And um, and and they were cool with you recording the shows. And every other band said, no, you can't record our shows. The Grateful Dead said, sure, why not? And um, and so that led to thousands and thousands of, of tapes and millions of tapes in circulation and then later on mp3 files but that's how I learned of the band and um, I you know last week I spent five thousand three hundred dollars on um, going to um, um, uh, go, going down to going down to Mexico in January of 2022 for three nights of the Grateful Dead at, in Mexico. Oh, you know, CID Entertainment put together this package. And I'm like, you know, if I'm into it, man. I'll spend $5,000. I haven't even bought my air tickets yet. $5,000 to go down to Mexico to see the dead three nights. Um, so I'm still 42 or three years later, I'm still spending money on the Grateful Dead. I, lo- I love it. I mean, that that in and of itself reminds me very closely of kind of the ML, the contrast between the NBA and the MLB. So the MLB, mm-hmm. uh, if you're if you're familiar with this, David. So MLB basically a number of years ago was like nobody's allowed to post our content anywhere. Yeah. It's our broadcast rights. Right. Yeah. Whereas the NBA is like clip it up, share yeah. it. We don't really care. And you look, you know, five, 10 years down the road where we are right now right. and the NBA shot past in popularity yeah. because they looked at the long-term fandom aspect of it, of how can we grow fandom right. for the long term? 
and the financial gains will come as opposed to the MLB that made a short-term decision based on financial gains. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I see that all the time in lots of different organizations as well. And, you know, with the Grateful Dead, um, they said, they did say, we don't want you to sell the, this music. Um, so, you don't, you can't profit off of it. If you want to make tapes and give them to your friends as a gift or trade them with other tape collectors, that's totally cool. Um, use it for your own use, of course, but all we ask is you don't sell. Um, they did the same thing, by the way, with their logo. So um, the Grateful Dead logo, um, so Steal Your Face logo, um, uh, they found early on that people were making T-shirts and selling them in the parking lots of the shows. And the band sort of said, well, what do we want to do about this? Should we crack down? And they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what to do here. And so what they ended up doing, which I think is a fabulous solution, is they basically um, they had a, um, a group of the roadies would go and go through um, the parking lot before the shows. Not every show, but some of them. And if you were just a cottage sort of industry, you know, um, making a couple of dozen T-shirts to sell at the show in order to make enough money to buy a ticket, you were cool. Go right ahead. We're happy to have you make T-shirts or sell photos of Jerry Garcia, whatever you want to do um, in the parking lot, make a little bit of money, totally fine. But if you pull up a box truck and you've got a thousand shirts and you've got a credit card machine, you're going to have to license the logo. They didn't say you couldn't do it. They just said, you've got to license the logo, pay a couple of bucks each time you use it, and you're cool. Um, every other band said, you can't sell anything in the parking lot because the only the official merchandise sold inside the venue is allowed. Um, and now, even you know, even today, the, the Grateful Dead started in 1965, 56 years later, I can't even believe that, um, um, you can still see people with... Grateful Dead logo on a T-shirt walking down the street. Many of those T-shirts may have been bought in a parking lot of the show. Never even uh, the band never even made a penny from other than building the fandom. But I, I think that's a huge part of of fandom as well. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the MLS. Are you familiar right. with supporter groups by any means? Uh, why don't you just no no? Why don't you describe them? So so in soccer, the supporter groups are really the rabid, rabid fans that are beating the drums, face painted, they're standing okay, and chanting yep, exactly. the entire game. Yep, yep. So so coming back from last week at this this new venue that we were at, one of the nights I went out to one of the supporter events and just sat for hours and talked yeah. to these supporters to yeah. try to understand their mentality, their psyche. And, and talking about the merchandise, that was one question that I asked was I said, what percentage of the merchandise in your closet for this soccer club are is official merchandise versus merchandise that you guys as supporters sell each other. Mm -hmm. They're like, honestly, it's probably 50 50. Mm. And I was really surprised that it was that high. Uh, I thought it would have been a lot more official, but what they said mm. was they're like, well, when my buddy makes a pair of socks that, you know, are, are related to the team, I'm going to go support my buddy. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm, right. I want to I want to buy that project. Plus, they're making cool gear. And so there's it goes back to this community and being a part of a tribe right. that the, the MLS teams now do a really good job partnering with these supporter groups, empowering these supporter groups, setting clear boundaries as to what they can yeah. and can't yeah. do. But they really empower them to say, go out and help us build this tribe. Right. I, I think it, I think the MLS has really, really benefited from that. It's a lot of th something that a lot of organizations. Could That's make. super interesting. So do you know with those supporter groups, if they use the team logo, do they pay a license fee or are they are they permitted so they, to do so? So they don't use the team logo. They use okay. variations. Right. Okay. So they use all the color schemes. Yeah. Uh, and then they create kind of their own. They, they take unique niches within the bigger club. So mm -hmm. let's call it uh, without using any specific examples and yeah. giving the team name away. Right. Yeah. If there are cultural aspects in that city, they're okay. building I around that you. with yeah. the team, mm -hmm. with the team logo, if that, or with the team colors. Got it. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. Um, it reminds me of something that um, Reiko shared with me. My daughter, my co-author co on our book, Fanocracy, my daughter Reiko is, 
Uh, and I mentioned earlier, she's now um, uh, an emergency doctor at Boston Medical Center. And she has um, dealt with COVID patients quite a bit. And when she deals with COVID patients, she has full on um, personal protective equipment, PPE. Um, you know, double masks. She's got the hair um, covering, uh, a shield, and then covered head to toe um, gloves um, so that the only thing that a patient can see that looks human are eyes. Everything else is covered. And imagine you know, you're, you're scared. You've come into the hospital for some something that's bad enough that you're in the emergency department. Perhaps you've just been tested for COVID. Um, and then all of a sudden this alien comes into and introduces herself as your doctor it makes you even, she, Reiko told me, it makes you even more scared. What she and her fellow doctors have learned to do is, is put on or wear some kind of, um, of, of logo merchandise of some kind that humanizes them. So Reiko will wear a Boston Bruins mask. She's she likes she's a Bruin fan. She'll wear Black Lives Matter pin. Um, uh, approximately forty percent of she's at Boston Medical Center of her patients um, uh, are um, are people of color, and and um, and sometimes she'll put on something Harry Potter gear. And then the um, they the the doctors and nurses have actually gotten together and created similar to what you described with MLS created sort of. Boston Medical Center, um, um, Boston sports team themed sweatshirts that they actually wear over the top of all of the other gear. So imagine someone comes in and they look like an alien with two eyes versus somebody come in with a logo mask and then a team BMC, however, in the colors and the fonts of a local sports team um, on she says that the patients all of a sudden they 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 relax and they smile and they say, "Oh my God, I love the Bruins too, or I love the Red Sox too, or what, I love the Celtics too, the Patriots." And and, and all of a sudden, it, the, the literally the outcome, the, the 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 healthcare outcome can be improved simply because the patient has become less frightened. Um, and so that I mean, I I just love that story of how. Um, that fandom has healthcare benefits. It's amazing. Yeah. It again. I think it goes back to just the emotional connection. And, and no matter what business you're in, the outcome is going to be better if you've got that type of deep emotional connection that people can relate to on a human level. And it's I not agree. just. Yeah. They're not just interacting with the brand in 2021. People want to interact with humans. Yeah. So the more that we can humanize the experience. Yeah. No question over. about it. And that's really what it comes down to. We put all, you know, all of it together in this this book that we wrote and and five years of research. It really is. It's about humanity. It's about becoming human. And it's you're not running a business. Well, sure, you are running a business, but your business is um, is tied up in fandom. It's about human relationships, and it doesn't matter what business. Actually, um, you know, we we found all kinds of different organizations, B two B companies, software companies, nonprofits, um, a battery company that have built fans. I love it. Um, all right, couple. We've got a couple minutes left. Yep. Uh, I want to hit some quick rapid fires. Before we go, um, what is one piece of bad advice that you constantly hear in our industry? Uh, you know what? Um, people love teams even if they're not doing well. Um, I, I, I think it's so interesting sometimes when you know you got to be winning, got to be winning, got to be winning. Well, yeah, that's nice, but um, people also love losers. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, all right. Where, where are you getting your inspiration from now? Uh, so obviously I, I just saw the recent piece and we talked a little bit about K-pop, um, but it could be books. It could be trends that you're seeing. Where are you currently grabbing some inspiration from? What's interesting to you right now that you're looking into more? Um, I, I actually love telling stories of other people's success. Um, so I'm always on the lookout for, and you've got me interested in MLS actually I filed that one back in my 
my, my, in my brain. Um, but, you know, where is success coming from? What companies are successful? What nonprofit is successful? What sports team is successful? Why are they successful? How can I tell their story? So I, that's what that's what gets me super jazzed. Give, give me a recent one that surprised you and caught you off guard. Um, I'm a huge fan of surfing. I mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. And I'm, um, I ran across this company called Grain Surfboards. They do wooden surfboards. And so that struck me as really interesting, wooden surfboards. I mean, back, back in the day, 150 years ago, all surfboards were wooden. But in the last 60 or 70 years, it's been fi- mainly fiberglass. And it turns out this company has pioneered a boat building technique to do wooden surfboards. And from the fandom perspective, which I love, is that you can come in and actually make your own surfboard in their factory. Too and cool. What, be, what became interesting to me about that, and I've done, I did it actually, I went and did it. What became interesting to me about that is they're actually giving away their trade secrets. You know, they, they have a proprietary technique that was, that was adapted from boat building. You, they, they have ribs and then over the top of the ribs, you put the wood and then there's special ways that it has to be sealed so that, um, uh, the water doesn't get in yet, but air does have to get in. Otherwise, it would explode when it heated up and all sorts of cool, interesting things. Proprietary, yet they allow people to come into the factory and build their own surfboards so anybody could steal their their stuff. So I, I, I love those sorts of stories. I'm always on the, on the lookout for them. I remember an article years ago that was talking about part of the key to I, IKEA's success mm is the frustrating build process <laughs> because when you build a desk or you build a, uh, you know, a, a nightstand, whatever it might be, you feel more emotional attachment yeah. to it because you put the work in for it. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and I do, I feel that way about my surfboard. Um, I actually have built a couple surfboards with them. I mean, you know, interesting aside to this is um, Duncan Hines cake mix became popular because there are other cake mixes, but they didn't, they weren't popular because all you had to do is add water. Duncan mm-hmm. Hyden says you have to add water and an egg. And as soon as you, as soon as, uh, and this is going back like 50, 60 years, as soon as, um, and it's almost always um, homemakers. A homemaker did that. They felt like they were, they were really doing some work for the family. You know, they had to add that egg. So they were actually cooking as opposed to putting water in, which was not so super interesting. I love it. Um, all right. Uh, two more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. Uh, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've seen an organization make who's really trying to grow their fandom or in being more fan centric or customer centric? Um, it could be, it could be, could be time, software, resources, capital, what no limits. Um, what an interesting idea. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to go back to the Grateful Dead just because I, I, I wrote a book called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. So I'm like really, really into that, what they've done to build fans of people like me who continue to spend ridiculous amounts of money with them. Um, but they spend so much money on their technology and always have. Um, they, in the back in the 1970s, built this wall of sound, this massive sound system that nobody else had done. And even, even up to the present day, they spend, typically spend more money than other bands on, on their, um, their sound systems and spend more money on their, uh, digital technology and so on. Um, you know, basically, if I can sum up what that means is they spend money on fans, you know, they, make the sound better. They make the experience better and, and, and so on so that people love them. Yeah. And creating a soundboard is not driving direct revenue right no, then and there. Not at it's, all. Part, it's, it's, it's an investment in the more money than the other guys, you know, you can cheapen it up and not do as good a sound system and not good at not, and they don't spend that much money on lights. Um, they do on sound. Um, but that is important stuff. If you're, if you're a fan of the music. All right. Last question before we wrap up here. Um, steal from Tim Ferriss on this one. You've get, you've got a billboard. You can put any anything up on it. Any piece of advice that you'd like to. Uh, what what piece of advice would you give our listeners uh, that you can put up on a on a billboard? So it's got to be short and sweet. Um, it's actually my pinned tweet: educate and inform instead of interrupt and sell. 
Beautiful. One more. Can you say that one more time? Educate and inform instead of interrupt and sell. Beautiful. Brings us to your Twitter handle. Uh, where can people follow along your journey, David? This has been an awesome conversation. Oh, thanks, David. Yeah, I pr- I've enjoyed it too. Always love talking about fandom. I'm DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T on Twitter. I also um, would like to encourage anyone who wants to know a little bit more about Fanocracy that my daughter Reiko and I have a site at www.fanocracy.com. Perfect. Uh, any anywhere else to follow along the journey or Twitter and buy the book? That's, that's um, the two main plugs. Um, Allison, uh, my my daughter Reiko is Allison underscore Reiko on Twitter. Check her out. Um, but yeah, that's those are those are places to see what we're up to. All right, sounds good. David, this has been a a fantastic conversation and uh, look forward to the next one. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, David. Today's episode is brought to you by Checked In, a new tool in your operations toolkit that helps you understand exactly who's working in your venue. It's one of the tech products the engagement team helped create during the pandemic. And with it, we set out to solve some of the key problems sports and entertainment operators face every day. The tool does a few things, from helping you gain more labor data to operate more efficiently and mitigate risk, and it also saves you time and headaches by automating the horrible check-in and credential approval process that has existed for so long. But my favorite part of Checked-In, hands down, is that it's tied to a digital learning platform. Now, historically, training game day staff has taken place before the beginning of a season, but how do you train the workers that start mid-season? Or the workers that just come in to work the big games, the big events. Well, this tool solves that issue. With Checked In, you can create and push training to your teammates digitally, and you can require employees to watch training videos before they're able to physically check in to work. Checked In has begun rolling out at some of the biggest stadiums in the country, and they're now opening up beta access on a limited basis. If you want to see how it works and get a demo, head to checkedin.app. That's C-H-E-C-K-D-I-N dot app. We'll make it easy and link to it in the show notes. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue, so when you're with us, Hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.